And now, Lord, as we come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word. And we remember that Your Word is sufficient, that it is inerrant, inspired, infallible, and that it does not return to You void. So we ask, O Lord, that You would speak to us through the study of Your Word, through the preaching of Your Word. And we ask, O Lord, that You would use this to sanctify us to strengthen us, to encourage us, to correct or admonish us, and to conform us to Christ's image. For His glory, in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Romans chapter 6. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 today. Uh, Just a special message for Resurrection Sunday as we not only consider that Christ is risen, but that we also consider that there are implications that that has for our lives. But today we're gathered to celebrate what we refer to as Resurrection Sunday. The world may refer to it as Easter. They may think about Easter bunnies and uh, eggs and things like that. I, I don't understand the connection between Easter bunnies and eggs, but... That's what the world is thinking of, but we have our minds, we have our hearts set on the resurrection of Christ. Now, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ every Sunday. That's why we gather on Sunday. That's why we gather, that's why we call it the Lord's Day. Uh, Not that every day doesn't belong to Him, it does, but the first day of the week is the day that Christ rose from the grave. The Lord's Day is the day, if you go through the New Testament, you find that there's all kinds of stuff happening on what they call the Lord's Day. Uh, That's when Christ appeared to the disciples. But what we remember today is that it's the day that Christ rose from the grave. Uh, Today is actually the, the official calendar day that He was resurrected, the day in which everything changed. That was really a day that that changed the world because before the resurrection, without the resurrection, the disciples, as we look at their lives, what did they do? They just went back to fishing. They went back to their old lives. They'd lost hope. But with the resurrection, it changed the entire course, not only of their lives, but of history as they proclaimed the gospel until the day that each of them died. Now the gospel is not only that Christ saved us from hell. He did. And if you present the gospel only that way, that Christ will save you from hell, you'll get a lot of false compliance from people because we have this instinct called self-preservation. And while it's true that Jesus does save us from hell in the future, The gospel does not stop there. That's not the extent of the good news. It's not only something that affects the distant future, what we hope is the distant future, right? No, it changes everything in the present for us as well. There are implications of it that apply to right now, right where you are in life right now. Because the gospel not only saves us from hell in the future, but it saves us from sin in the present. Ask a sinner, apart from God's work in their life, if they want to be saved from hell. And their answer will almost always be, of course. Because that whole self-preservation thing, right? 
But if you ask a sinner apart from God's work in their life, if they want to be saved from sin, because you can't have one without the other, ask them apart from God's work if they want to be saved from sin, and you won't get one single person on the face of the earth who will answer in the affirmative. Only God's work in a person's life can change that answer. Jesus saved those who believe in Him from hell. Amen. And the resurrection proves it. We're we're celebrating the resurrection, but we cannot separate Resurrection Sunday from Good Friday. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, In death He discharged our debt. In resurrection He exhibited the receipt of all our liabilities. You You might say that He purchased us with His blood and with His life on Friday. And by raising from the grave, He showed proof of purchase. But He didn't only save us from hell. He didn't save us only to keep us out of hell. He also saved us from sin. And the Resurrection Sunday is as good a time as any to be reminded of that blessed truth, as well as all the practical implications of it. Because if we understand the implications that the resurrection has on our everyday lives, not just today, but every day, then we should have a strong aversion for sin. Because Christ has an aversion for sin. Indeed, Christ has a hatred for sin. Think of it this way. If if there's any food that my wife absolutely hates, any food that she has a really, really strong aversion to, you know what I'm going to say, it's lima beans. Uh, I don't know why she hates them as much as she does. All I know is I've never heard her complain about any other food without eating it, uh, as she has complained about lima beans. Uh, And and I guess I can't really blame her, but you might guess that for that reason, uh, we never buy lima beans. And we never eat lima beans. It's one thing for your kids to say that they hate a particular food. Guess what? You know, if you want dessert, you're going to have to eat it one way or another anyway. But when your spouse, when the person whom you love more than any other has a serious hatred or aversion for a particular food, it would be very strange. Uh, It would be very unusual. It would not seem natural to expect your spouse to consume it. Now, I'm not here to make a a dietary point. What I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to illustrate is the fact that if someone that we love has an aversion for something, love should prevent us from engaging in that act, especially if it involves our loved one also being engaged with the thing that they have an aversion to or that they hate. So the illustration can can be even taken one step further. Uh, Suppose my wife not only hated lima beans, let's say that just hypothetically, uh, that she would have such an allergic reaction to lima beans that it could kill her if she ate them. Uh, Not only would I not have her eat them, but I wouldn't be eating them either. I, I would stay away from them as well. And this, friends, is the attitude that every Christian should have towards sin. Now I realize that this is a a radical thought in a day and age when a lot of churches are downplaying sin and not talking about sin and not wanting to confront people in their sin and not you know forcing people to deal with their sin but please hear me out the argument can be broken down this way first of all Christ hates sin Christ hates sin in fact he died because of sin 
Secondly, we are united with Christ. You and I have a union, a supernatural union with Christ. And when we say that, we don't just mean it in a figurative sense. We don't just mean that we're united with Him in some uh, non-literal way. We mean this literally. We mean this ontologically. That's just a fancy way of saying that our union with Christ is central to our very nature as human beings who have been redeemed. Christ hates sin. We're united with Christ. And number three, it's not only not wise, but it's not possible that we should enjoy sin or take a casual approach towards sin if we are united to Christ. To put it another way, how can someone, how can anyone who has been raised, united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection, and who has been raised with Christ, and who is therefore free to walk in newness of life, how can that person have a casual attitude toward that one thing, that one very thing that Christ abhors, sin? The answer is we can't. We can't. By virtue of our union, union, our unity with Christ. So the passage that we'll be looking at today is going to show us that because we were baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, we are freed from the power of sin to walk in newness of life. Paul makes this exact argument in the sixth chapter in his letter to the church of Rome. The fifth chapter, just to give a little context, the fifth chapter of uh, Romans focuses on the fact that Christ is what we would call our federal head. Our federal head. There, there are only two federal heads. There's Adam and there's Christ. You are either in Adam and dead, or you are in Christ and you are alive. But Christ is our federal head. That's the point of Romans chapter 5. It's in the fifth chapter that we read all these, these glorious truths about what Christ has done to unite us to Himself, such as the fact that while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly in verse 6, and then in verse 8, and that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul then goes on to explain that through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's in verse 12. He goes on in verse 14. He's saying, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. That word type is important. That's saying that Adam is the other federal head. Uh, So Adam is a type. Adam is one federal head. Through him, through Adam, death entered into and reigned over the entire human race because the penalty of sin is death and all sinned in Adam because Adam is our federal head. He was our legal representative because we all proceeded from him. So in God's eyes, He was our representative by nature. But Paul says that Adam was only a type of him who was to come. That, of course, refers to the other federal head, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where the contrast comes in. Paul says this in verse 15. He says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to 
the many. And he continues in verse 17 by proclaiming the glorious truth that if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. The point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 5 is that how we act what reigns over us, what controls us in our lives is determined by who our federal head is. And that we are therefore so joined, so united to Christ through faith that we are completely in Him and that our union with Him results in a change of direction and a change of actions. The Christian has to understand that he has such union with Christ that he cannot help but grow in Christ's likeness. That this union with Christ affects every single thing about his life. Every aspect. The point of the passage that we'll be looking at today in Romans chapter 6 is that our union with Christ is the basis and the power for our separation from sin and for walking in newness of life all to the glory of Christ. Now maybe you're wondering what all this has to do with the resurrection. Good question. We're going to get to that as we look through this passage. The answer is that it has everything to do with the resurrection of Christ. So listen to how Paul addresses the argument that because grace sustains us in Christ and sin invokes God's grace upon us, that we should therefore either increase in sin or at least continue in sin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. He says, What shall we say then? In light of the truths of chapter 5, what are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Our justification, our being forgiven, our being redeemed by God through the shed blood of Christ on Calvary is not only about us being reconciled to God and avoiding hell. That's part of it. It is about that. But it's also the means that God has ordained to an even greater end than that. Something that you don't have to wait for. That being that our union with Christ produces a practical outworking in our lives. Not only a calling to be holy, not just the call to follow Christ and to to be holy, but an enabling to follow Christ and be holy. A calling and an enabling to follow Christ and to be holy. The force of Paul's argument as you go through this this passage here is most strongly felt probably in verse 4. There's kind of a build-up to it. It really starts kind of with with verse 3 where we see Paul writing as if he's just shocked that somebody wouldn't know this truth. He's he's surprised at the idea that we would experience more of uh, God's grace if we continue in sin. Therefore, we should continue in sin. 
He's shocked by the idea that somebody would even think that. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And as he continues, it's as if he's kind of annoyed almost, at least dismayed, surprised that somebody who's a Christian would ever, ever think that it's acceptable to take some kind of casual approach towards sin in their lives. He says, or do you not know? Are you ignorant of the fact? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Now we're going to start with this wonderful doctrine. That all who believe in Christ and who are therefore in Christ, all who have truly and savingly believed in Christ and are therefore under His federal headship have been baptized into Christ's death. Now, lest anybody get very confused here and think that this is affirming the false gospel of baptismal regeneration, which is the idea that you're, you're saved by being physically baptized, uh, we should understand that Paul is not talking about physical baptism here. He's talking about spiritual baptism, what you might call the baptism of the Spirit, which every believer, upon believing, experiences. This baptism of which Paul speaks is a baptism that is not seen, is not witnessed by the eyes. It might even be something that the individual isn't immediately aware of in a, in a tangible or scientific or, or experiential quantifiable sense. It's something that God and not man, not, not a pastor or anybody, performs. Physical baptism, that, that's, what the, that's what the pastor does. That's what man does. It, but physical baptism is a picture of spiritual baptism. A, a physical expression of a spiritual reality. An external demonstration of a work that's been done internally. So we practice this baptism of ordinance upon those who have experienced this baptism that Paul is writing about here, a spiritual baptism. The Greek word for baptism, baptizo, means to fully immerse. To fully immerse. That's why when we baptize, we don't sprinkle. Uh, if it's going to be a picture of God's grace, God doesn't sprinkle His grace on us. He immerses us in His grace. We immerse someone, therefore, completely in water when we baptize because that's the closest thing to a picture of what happened when we were saved. Not only did God baptize us into the, the body of Christ, of which all Christians are part, but He also baptized us. He immersed us into Christ's death. Being baptized into His death, we have to understand, was necessary for our salvation. It was necessary for our salvation. It not only made us partakers of the privileges and the blessings that were purchased by the death of Christ, but it also frees us from sin's yoke, enabling us to not sin. This is a freedom that the natural man knows nothing of. Everything that the natural man does, everything that the unbeliever does is corrupted by sin. Even the best things, the nicest things, the kindest acts that an unregenerate person does 
are driven, are motivated by sin. Even the best things. Because nothing, absolutely nothing, that the unbeliever does is done for the glory of God. And nothing that he does is motivated by love for God. Or obedience for God. And anything not done for the glory of God, done in obedience to God, is sin. Everything. Everything. So we weren't only justified so that we don't have to worry about hell someday. We were also justified in order that we would no longer have sin as our master. We're no longer to live for ourselves. There's a 180 here, a total change of direction. We're no longer to live for ourselves. We're no longer to walk in the same ways that we once did. Why not? Because that person who was baptized into Christ was baptized into his death. He's dead now. And a dead man can't walk. So if you were baptized into Christ's death, you can't walk in sin. That person was immersed into Christ's death and died when Christ died. That's the point that Paul is making here. The first point that Paul's making here. That we died to sin by being baptized into the death of Christ. What this means in a, in a practical sense is that you are to die to all of your old, all the things that you were, all the, all the old pre-salvation ways that you walked in, the desires, the habits, the aspirations, the affections, the things you loved, the things you hated. They're all to be changed from what they once were. Why? Because that person, who you once were prior to Christ, who you were in Adam before coming to Christ, is dead. That person, what Paul will call the old man or the old self, he wasn't referring to his dad when he said his, the old man. That person was baptized by God into Christ's death. Our baptism, our, our immersion into Christ's death dealt with a specific aspect of our salvation, the removal of our guilt being one of those, being primary. The, the basis of God's forgiveness, the basis of His grace being poured out upon us was not only uh, that Jesus took our sins upon Himself, He did, but also that He took our sin upon Himself. In other words, our old sin nature. Donald Gray Barnhouse explained it this way. He said, The sin of all those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world was placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by God the Father, who then put the Savior to death. This judicial act forever removed all guilt from the believer and made it possible for him to stand cleansed forevermore. End quote. To which we say, Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Our guilt has been taken away. The old man has been put to death. Jesus took upon Himself every sin that His people would commit. All the guilt, all the shame that we would accumulate over the course of our respective lives was heaped upon Him. And as a just judge, God dealt with our sin once and for all. It was a, an outpouring of justice that God did this. 
By baptizing us into Christ's death, we were saved from the penalty of sin, and through our union with Christ, we are saved from sin's power over us as well. In Matthew Henry's words, we were baptized into Christ's death in order that we may, quote, conform to the pattern of His death, that as Christ died for sin, so we should die to sin, end quote. Should end by the power of the Holy Spirit working and dwelling within us. Could and should. In light of the reality of our baptism into Christ's death, On the cross, Paul writes, moving to the practical implications in verse 4. He says, Therefore, in other words, in light of those truths that we were baptized into his death, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. As surely as Christ was buried, our old nature was buried with Him. It was taken far away. So far away that it can never, ever return. As we've been studying John chapter 17, we've also seen the way that Christ's uh, high priestly prayer uh, and his, the work that He was about to, uh, to perform, the sacrifice of Himself that He was about to present, it was all paralleled by the instructions for the high priest found in Leviticus chapter 16. Immediately after Aaron's two sons had been struck dead for coming before God in a manner that God had not prescribed, God ordained a yearly ceremony which, if done in obedience with and in accordance to God's instructions, would ensure that Aaron could, uh, could go into God's presence and not be killed. Uh, He wouldn't come out dead uh, like his sons did. On the yearly day of atonement, what we call Yom Kippur, the high priest was to enter uh, the holy place with a bull for a sin offering and with a ram for a burnt offering. The sin offering was for himself because like all descendants of Adam, even the high priest, the high Levitical priests were sinners. Jesus didn't need to do this, by the way. And the book of Hebrews makes this very clear when it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, that Jesus, quote, does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered himself up. So we don't have an annual Day of Atonement. We don't uh, celebrate Yom Kippur as Christians because Christ performed his work once and for all. He presented a sacrifice that is forever sufficient. He fulfilled the day. And so those who continue to uphold the annual ceremony of Yom Kippur, thinking that it's efficacious toward anything, are doing so not only in vain, but they're doing so idolatrously. But the primary aspect of Yom Kippur, what was central to all the ceremonies that were involved on that day, was the ceremony involving two goats. The high priest would take two goats and he would cast lots for the two goats. And one would be sacrificed for the Lord while the other would become the scapegoat. The high priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confess all the sins, all the iniquities of the people of the assembly 
and all the sins and all the transgressions would be put upon the head of this goat. The scapegoat would then be driven far away into the wilderness never to return to the camp ever again. That's a picture of our sin being carried away. It was a picture of what happened as Christ was buried. As our old nature and Christ were buried and all of our guilt for sin included. He carried our sin and our sins so far away that they could never be held against us, uh, against us again, and that they would be powerless over us. We died with Christ, and we were buried with Christ. For what purpose? To what end? Look what Paul says next. He says, so that, verse 4, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. You were not only united to Christ in His death, but you were united to Christ in His death and His burial in order that you may also be united to Him in His resurrection. That you may be raised with Him. All in order that you would be free. Free from the penalty of sin, absolutely. Eternity in hell, yes, you're free from that. But also free from the power of sin. Free from bondage to sin. So you're free, therefore, to not sin. You are free, therefore, to walk, to live, to think, to act, all in newness of life, all because of the union that we have with Christ. So the point that Paul's making here is that sin should no longer dominate us. That sin should no longer control us. That sin has lost its grip, its power on us. It's like being unplugged and thrown away. Sin should no longer characterize our lives as it once did. The idea that because God has has poured His grace out on us, we can sin casually and without consequence because God's grace is going to cover it. That is a lie from the deepest, darkest hottest depths of hell because the old person that we once were is dead it died in christ that person didn't walk in newness of life who we are now not in adam but in christ is free to walk in newness of life think of it this way well let's suppose that there was a a a man who committed some kind of heinous crime which resulted in his immediate death and that by a miracle, by, by God's direct causation, God caused the man to live again, to come back to life. Do you think that that man who's been raised back to life is going to commit that same crime again and again and again and again? Not if he's wise. And that's a picture of you being raised to life, to newness of life, if you have savingly believed upon Christ. Now you might say, I don't understand. I, I never felt that. I never, I never died as a result of my sin. But that's where you're wrong. Maybe in your eyes you don't physically see it. I get that. No, we don't physically see it. But in God's eyes, you did. In God's eyes, you did. But by grace, you have been raised with Christ into newness of life. And so the 
result of that is that we are now seen by God in such a way that we were not seen prior to our salvation. We're seen as being united to Christ, united with Him in His death, so that we may be united with Him in His resurrection. So this is not only a work, and it's not only a a promise that will keep us out of hell, but it's also a promise that will keep us out of sin. It's a work that not only affects the future, but it's also a work that affects your life right now, today. Apart from the death and resurrection of Christ, we were separated from God. We were enemies of God. We were rebels against His every sovereign decree. But now, because of Christ's atoning work, because of His death, because of His resurrection, not only are we no longer separated, but we are united with Him in such a way that our values and our desires and our aspirations all start to align with His. Now, This is not to say that we won't sin. Because we will. Because we still carry the flesh. The flesh is still part of who we are, even as the nature of Christ and the mind of Christ are ours. We carry the flesh nature and we're instilled with the Spirit of God, which are at odds with one another. There's like kind of a tug of war between the war, between the flesh and the Spirit that begins on the day of our salvation, but that war will not be fully won until the day that we stand before Christ and see Him as He is with our own eyes. The Apostle John writes of that day in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where he says this, he says, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We see Him dimly now. But the day will come when we don't see Him dimly And that's going to put to death every aspect of the flesh nature. But until that day, until that happens, every single one of us is in the middle of a war. And you cannot be neutral. You cannot be passive. You cannot be a pacifist in this war, friends. You are to wage war with your sin. You are to mortify it. Listen, tell me, tell me this. If you knew 100% without a doubt that God had instructed you to kill the devil, let's just pretend for a moment that such a thing was possible, that God had instructed you to kill the devil, and if He had commanded you to do that and had enabled you to do that, and you knew that, let's say that you, that you, that you could. And so you've got the devil cornered. What are you going to do? Are you just going to say, stop it? Maybe, maybe you punch him a time or two, but then you walk away because you don't want to hurt him too bad. Or would you do everything in your power to rip his heart out? If you knew, if you knew 100% that God had instructed you to do this, you would do everything in your power to end the devil's life, to rip his heart out. He hasn't instructed you to go to war with and hunt down and kill the devil. But he has both instructed and enabled you to kill your sin. 
Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. He says, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That's who you used to be, right? Those in Adam have an obligation to live according to the flesh. He goes on saying, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is one of the primary purposes of our justification, friends. To walk in newness of life means hunting down and ripping the heart out of those old passions, those old desires, those old aspirations and affections. Because all of those things were pointing you, were leading you away from God. But you can do this because now you're dead to the power of sin. You have no obligation to the flesh. You're dead to the dominion of sin. You're dead to the desire of the flesh. You're dead to the guidance of sin. And you're alive to live your lives in a way that is pleasing to God. This is exactly why Louis Burkhoff once wrote that, quote, the greatest liberating force in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would know that liberating power, that liberating force, because it not only frees us to stand before God as children who are forgiven rather than as criminals who are found guilty and awaiting final sentencing, but it frees us to live our lives, as R.C. Sproul used to like to say, quorum Deo. Quorum Deo. That to live quorum Deo means to live one's entire life in the presence of God, by the power of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. We died with Christ because we were baptized into His death, united to Him in His death. And we were raised to newness of life with Him because we were united to Him. Just as we were under the dominion of sin in the federal headship of Adam, now in the federal headship of Christ, we are under the dominion of God, which causes us to be slaves not of sin, but of righteousness. How we act and what reigns in our lives, to use Paul's language, is directly connected to who our federal head is, who we are in, either Adam or Christ. Listen to how Paul concludes this section of his letter to the church in Rome, verses 5 to 7 of Romans chapter 6. He continues saying, For... In other words, again, he's continuing with this idea. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, or the old man, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin." not only from sin's penalty, but from sin's power. Sin is a death sentence. Death is the wage of sin. So how can someone who has been raised to newness of life by virtue of union with Christ, how can that person go back to living under sin's dominion, go back to living under sin's influence, go back to living under sin's power? The answer is, you can't. You can't. 
So, so what are we supposed to do then when sin gets the best of us? Since we know that none of us is without sin, we all sin daily. So what are we supposed to do in those moments when sin gets the best of us? I'd say that the answer to that starts with understanding that there is a difference between a, a sin uh, by virtue of the fact that we still carry around our flesh nature and practicing sin, going back to it repeatedly like a dog returning to its vomit. But ultimately, what we do when we catch ourselves in sin is we confess it. We confess it. We, we agree with what God has said about it. That's what it means to confess. Confessing doesn't mean admitting it. Confessing means, God, everything that you said about this particular sin, I agree with. The Greek word is homo logeo, same word. It means agreeing with what God has said. So we confess it and we repent of it, and then we go to war with it. We don't just leave it like that. We go to war with it. We figure out why we're doing it. And we go to war with it. We cut it off. We kill it. And we must not fail to do that. We must return to the Gospel when we find ourselves in sin, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God has so united us. This is good news, friends. That God has so brought us together and united us with Christ that we are now no longer under sin's power. Do you need to be reminded of that? I need to be reminded of that every single day. That sin does not have power over me. I don't have to obey it. I have no obligation, no compulsion to obey it, I have every compulsion, every reason to disobey what my flesh is telling me to do. Think of it this way. If, if, Christ, if we're united with Christ, if, if Christ would not walk toward or go toward a certain sin and, and we're united with Christ, then how can we go toward that sin? Think of it like being tied, tied together. How, how are you going to do that? How, how are you going to go one way and he's going to go another way while you're still connected? You can't. Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 19, He said, because I live, you will live also. So there's kind of an element of grafting here. The new branch lives because it's grafted into the old branch, and we are grafted, we're united into Christ, so that as He lives, we live also. Because that promise was not just for the disciples, that promise was also for us. If you are not united to Christ, friends, You can have everything, every pleasure, every shiny thing that this world has to offer, and still you ultimately have absolutely nothing. Apart from Christ, you are under the authority of sin. You are under the dominion of death. But in Christ, you are alive. And in Christ, you are freed to walk in obedience to Christ. Apart from Him... You're under sin's curse, and you're under God's wrath. But in Him, every heavenly blessing, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, every heavenly blessing is yours. Now, present tense. Those blessings aren't just for the future. They are for the present, for the the here and now. Are, Are you living like it? 
Because that includes, one of those blessings of heaven includes the power to live today under the authority of Christ. If you find yourself apart from Him, not believing, not living in Him, not walking in Him, know that as surely as the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, nothing prevents you from coming to Him to receive salvation, both from hell and from sin's power. Accept yourself. Accept yourself. Ask Him for help. Plead with Him if you have to. But come to Christ in saving faith. He will not turn you away. Paul says to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-3, to he says, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, Christ didn't only die to save us from hell. He also died to save us from sin. And Resurrection Sunday is as good a time as any to be reminded of that blessed truth. If you are in Christ, then by virtue of your union in Him, you will learn to become more like Him. You will learn to love what He loves and hate what He hates. And He hates sin. And throughout your sanctification, you will learn to hate sin with the kind of hatred that God has towards sin. I want you to see that in your lives. How can anyone, how can anyone who has been united to Christ in His death and in His resurrection and who is therefore free to walk in newness of life, how can that person have a casual or a flippant attitude, attitude toward the one thing that Christ absolutely abhors and for which He died? Sin. The answer is, we can't. Friends, He has called us to go to war against our sin and to fight not in our own strength, but in His. If you are in Christ, you have been baptized into His death. You have been baptized into His burial in order that you may be raised up with Christ into newness of life. You are raised up with Christ for that purpose, so that you may now walk not according to the deeds of the flesh, but according to the will of God, Coram Deo, under His authority, by His power, for His glory. So think often, friends, about the Gospel. Think often about your new position in Him, your union with Christ. Set your mind on these things. Consider who you are in Christ, because it's our union with Christ that is the basis and the power for our separation from sin and our walking in newness of life, all for His glory. Let's pray. Our most merciful Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day in which we remember that Christ was risen from the dead, victorious over sin and death, that death has now lost its sting and sin for those who believe savingly on Christ has lost its power. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would know that power, 
that we would not only know it, but that we would live by it. So we ask, O Lord, convict us of our sin and teach us what it truly means to walk in newness of life. Teach us what it means to live not under sin's power and sin's authority, but under Christ's authority for His glory. Strengthen us, encourage us, admonish us, discipline us as we need, as you know we need. And we ask that you would do these things all to make us more like Christ so that we may walk in newness of life and thereby glorify him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.